Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits. Joining me today is Amber Wynn to talk about starting your very own nonprofit. Amber, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. So please tell me, Amber, what is your superhero origin story? How is it that you get started, or how did you get started working with nonprofits? You know, I wish it was a superhero starting. It really was a matter of economics. I fell into the nonprofit world because I graduated from Loyola Marymount University thinking I was going to go into corporate America, but could not land a job. So a friend of a friend of a friend's cousin (laughs) actually gave me a job at this really cruddy nonprofit in South Central Los Angeles. And we served justice-involved individuals, people who had been um, incarcerated, people who were, you know, formerly gang-affiliated. And I started off as a, as, a, as a program coordinator. And because my major was English, they just said, oh, well, you can write the grants. And so that's when my journey began. That sounds very tough. So it does sound like a pretty good superhero story, if you ask me, actually. <laughs> well, it wasn't glamorous. <laughs> But it doesn't need to be. The superhero story can be can be gritty, can be wholesome, it can be accidental, it can be. And we've you know heard all kinds of stories here, so there's no right way to do it. But what I've noticed is that people who gen who tend to fall into the nonprofit space really want to stick around. They find purpose and meaning and rewarding elements to it. So happy that you're here with us. Yes, I'm happy that I'm here too. I did do a stint in corporate America, and I'll tell you. I couldn't wait to get back to the nonprofit sector. So I think you're right. <laughs> so the idea here is to talk about like the early stages of nonprofits, because that's something that you have a lot of expertise with. So we're starting, let's say, from ground zero here, right? I have an idea. I see a need somewhere in my community. I'm thinking about maybe starting a nonprofit. But obviously, I'm, it's just an idea. And it's a, not necessarily a wishful thinking, but it's, it's I want to do good. I want to do it right. I know people have done this before. I'm not creating something that's you know, brand new, never done before. So what would you be the steps that you would recommend to that kind of early, early stages for a person who's just getting off, looking maybe for advice, asking around friends or family? Like, what does that context look like? And when or what things should they keep in mind as they're working towards actually creating that nonprofit? I love this question. I love this question because people have heart and passion and they want to make a difference and they just jump into the nonprofit sector without really recognizing that a nonprofit is a business. It's just a business with a philanthropic purpose. And so they jump in thinking, I'm going to get my 501c3 and all of these grants are just going to start rolling in. And actually, when you get your 501c3, that's like the middle, right? What you should do before you even file is do research. I can tell you if a nonprofit is going to be successful in a community by looking at its competitors. It's sort of like what they tell you to do for a for-profit, but it's slightly different. So if you have a lot of, let's just say in your community, young people who aren't graduating. So you're like, I'm going to start an after-school program or a tutoring program. First thing you want to do is to look in your community to see how many tutoring programs are already there because there's a limited amount of funding. And so if you are, if you have so many nonprofits or organizations providing tutoring or youth development programs in your community, it's going to be a challenge for you to get funded. So you want to be in a community, yes, where there's needs, but also where it's not overly saturated with other 
service providers. So that's the first thing you want to do is to do your research. Go on Google and put in whatever you're going to do. Put your zip code in and see how many um, service providers are in your community. That's the very first thing. People just open up nonprofits and they're like, oh, I'm the only one doing it. And the first thing I do is I Google them. I'm like, well, there's six other organizations in your community. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Uh Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then after that, after you determine like, okay, this is a good community to be in, it's not oversaturated, then the next thing you want to do is really to start building out your infrastructure. The first, You don't want to jump in, file your 501c3 tax-exempt status. You want to get a track record. So even before you start, like find one of those nonprofits, one of your competitors and say, hey, I know that you do tutoring, but guess what? I do etiquette. Can I partner with you for six months, provide this free service so that you can get a track record? Because funders don't fund concepts. That's not true. If you're a great grant writer, you can get a concept funded. But I'm saying, generally speaking, funders want to fund nonprofits that have a track record. So you want to get one. You want to establish some some type of track record in your community. So those would be the the first two, I think, very basic foundational things you want to do before you even, you know, launch into it. Because here's the other thing. People have an idea, but when you start delivering services and you see how challenging it is, you you might say, oh, this is not what I want to do. And that's okay because there's other things you can do. You can sit on a board, you can volunteer, but before you file that 501c3, really do some research. So in that research component, you talked about mostly about seeing what other nonprofits are offering in the community. What about market need? Uh, Because this is definitely one thing that for-profit companies do is they make sure that they do any of the focus groups or talk to different people, people they think could be clients. Like, is there any portion of that research element where you would want to talk to people to say, you know, if we offer this program, would you be interested? Or is that kind of just assumed and if you build it, they will come? No, it's not so much if you build it, it will come. I have a client right now who she's like, well, I'm offering these workshops and nobody shows up. Mm. So, no, if you build it, it does not necessarily mean that it will come. Depending on what your area of focus is, like there are a lot of public agencies out there that can give you that type of information. Department of Mental Health, there's a lot of focus on mental health right now, social justice, youth development, um, foster care. And you can find out where the need is just by going to these agencies. They have all types of data, metrics, research, just to really find out what's the perfect community. And then, like you said, you can go into that community meet with some of the public agencies, some of the nonprofits there, do some focus groups, find out what type of services are missing. We, we know what's here, but what would you like? And that will help. And then to define or refine that kind of, would you ask for that kind of feedback? Like, again, I like that hypothetical question of asking, if we were to offer this, would this be interesting to you? And if not, what should we add or change to it that would make it more attractive? Because let's say, for example, or using your example of the youth not graduating, so your idea mm-hmm. might be, okay, after school programs, but what they would really love is sports programs, like specifically exactly. sports. So like, how would you know how to, is it just through, is there a mechanism, an easy mechanism or a straightforward mechanism to test your theories before you start saying, okay, I got it. Now I need to know I need to, what I need to do. I need to build that sports program. Yeah. So one of the opportunities that I had, I was a programs administrator for Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and she was really big with community assessment. Because what typically happens is that a funder will say, 
do this in your community. And it might not necessarily work. But if you do a community assessment, that could be surveys, that could be, you know, focus groups, it could be, a, you know, a litany of things showing up to already established community meetings and asking those questions like, you know, when I did it, we were really surprised because our youth did say to us, we don't need another tutoring program, right? You know, we need somewhere to hang out that's safe. Our area was kind of gang infested. So they just wanted somewhere safe to be from the hours of two to six. We created that and then we backdoored it. We're like, okay, here's somewhere to hang out. And over here, you can play caroms. Over here, you can play cards. And guess what? If you need some homework assistance... <laughs> So it's important to ask your community, what is it that they want and what is it that they need? And then the second point, the building infrastructure, I really like the idea of having a track record because they, they, it shows that you are not starting from absolute zero. You have some experience in the industry or in the market or in that aspect or element of what you're trying to provide. But it's an interesting take to, to kind of partner up with an existing nonprofit. Is that something that is like feasible in the sense of, I, I had a certain sense that nonprofits are kind of competitive. And if you came on board saying, I'm, I'm going to offer this and then eventually branch off to do my own nonprofit, is there any kind of competition where the first would say, well, I'm not so interested in doing that. I mean, stay if you want to stay, but don't use me to bounce off to create your own. I don't, I'm just curious to see if that is something that's a concern or is it all, you know, as long as it's helping the community, we're all here for the right reasons. Let's work together for now and hopefully you'll be successful in the future. Two things about that, Alex. First of all, um, a lot of people start nonprofits thinking that the funder's purpose is to fund nonprofits. It is not. The funder's purpose is to meet their funding goals. And they are looking for qualified nonprofits to partner with to help them to meet their goals. So um, this also speaks to why funders don't fund salaries. They fund programs because a nonprofit is a business and they expect the nonprofit to be covering their business expenses. So that's number one. Number two, to answer your question, the reason why an established nonprofit or just another nonprofit would be open is because it is hard to fund a nonprofit. And so if you're saying to them, listen, I want to add to your services, it's only going to make them look good, especially if you're saying, I want to do it for free. And especially if you're upfront, listen, I don't have a track record. I'd love to pilot this with your kids or your seniors or whoever, just to see if this is even viable. And nonprofits are always open to having resources for their community. And if you're, if you're upfront and open, they're not going to have any issues with that because they do. They want to strengthen their programs. It's going to make them look good as well. So when they're writing their grants and they're talking to their elected officials, they'll say, yes, we did this, you know, after school program. And then we piloted this program, this etiquette program, and we think it would be amazing. We'd like to add it to what it is that we do. Competition is really only the competition in the money part. And I believe if people looked at it as the funder does, which is they want more collaborations. Um, they'd understand the value of actually partnering. Awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they've done the research. They know what they want. They've got the track record, I should say. Yeah. Next step, typically you're saying is now apply for a 501c3, which of course in Canada means something different, but it's basically the, I'm now registering a charity, right? What would be No, then? no, no. I, I, I oh, wouldn't no? say that. I would say after you've um, piloted your idea, your proof of concept, 
Then mm-hmm. you build out the infrastructure. Building out the infrastructure is so crucial. People will spin their wheels for two or three years because they throw together a mission, they put three people on the board, and they file their 501c3. Building the infrastructure is the difference between a nonprofit closing their doors and getting funding three, four times faster. And when I say build the infrastructure, Alex, this is what this means. You need to have a clear, concise mission that inspires, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a program description for all your programs with measurable goals and objectives. That is how a funder determines whether or not they want to partner with you. If you just say, oh, we're going to reduce um, high school dropouts. Well, how how will I be able to determine after I give you my $250,000 that you've accomplished that? You need to have measurable goals and objectives. Most of my clients, when they come to me, never have measurable goals or objectives. They don't even have proof. They don't say, they can't say how many people they've served since their inception because they haven't kept record of their sign-in sheet. So, Building out your infrastructure is crucial to being able to answer the guidelines of any funder's request. And and people just jump over that. They're just like, oh, we're going to throw three people on the board. The board of directors is extremely important with the, the development of an organization because the IRS has given them fiduciary responsibility to govern the organization. So that is a part of the infrastructure. And the last thing, Alex, is having an accurate budget. A budget is not how much money you have in your bank. It's not how much money you fundraise. An accurate budget is how much it costs to run your organization. So when a funder asks you for your annual budget, that's what they want to know. How much does it cost to run your organization? So when you give them a budget that's $80,000 and they know that it takes $300,000 to run the organization, they're going to look at you a little suspect because they already know how much it costs to run an organization. So before you even file your 501c3, you need to put your infrastructure in place because those are the things that you need to give to a funder to prove that you're a viable nonprofit organization. That was a lot, huh? No, I love it. And, and thank you for correcting me. For the measurable goals, I mean, I love that because it's really about outcomes, not about inputs. So I'm happy to hear that. And especially measurable, because how do you know how far you've gone if you can't measure how far you've exactly. came? Exactly. Exactly. Something to that effect. And how, and how would a funder know, all things considered, if there's two nonprofits, how would a funder determine who they're going to go with? They're going to go with the, the organization that says, we've graduated 80% of our constituents versus a person who can't even tell you how many they've served. It just gives them more confidence because you have demonstrated proof that you know what you're doing. And then on the budget side, would a would a, a business plan or something to that effect be helpful as well to know and to plan for the budget? Because I imagine when you're starting off, you don't quite know, you have maybe a rough idea, people, salaries, tech, office space, uh, other auxiliary expenses. I mean, Putting it together in some kind of business plan, would that make sense? Or is that more on the for-profit side? That's more on the for-profit side. People say, oh, mm. I've, I've built a business plan and I smile because it's a lot of work. Um, but no, a, a business plan is not not really useful from the perspective of a budget. Really, honestly, if you get out a notepad and you just write out, what would it take to operate your organization at optimal level. I have a whole process that I have my clients do. I'm like, pull out a notebook, especially if they've been in it for more than, you know, um, a year. Now, if you're just starting out, really, all you can do is guess, right? All you can say is, um, I'm, I'm in, I'm the executive director. I'm going to at least need an administrative assistant, 
two program coordinators, because remember, the budget is how much it costs. You don't know until you go through it, right? Mm, so exactly. I'm going to need supplies. I'm going to need supplies. I'm going to need materials. I'm going to need a photocopier. So you put down all of those things. And most people will say, oh, my budget is about $50,000. That's a program budget. That's not an organization budget. And so it's important from a funder's perspective that they're funding a, an organization that knows that they're a business. And if you're saying that your organization budget is $50,000, I, I know that you, you don't understand what you're doing. Okay. So I've done the research. I've built the infrastructure. I have an accurate budget. Can I now file for my 501c3? The last thing you need to do <laughs> <laughs> is have a seasoned board of directors. People put their cousins, their moms, their husbands on their board. I advise against it because as a funder, family members on a board mean something. If you have more than um, 51% of your family on the board, you are now a family foundation. And that's a whole different thing than a public charity. The other reason why we don't want family members on the board is it could create a conflict of interest. If the executive director who reports to the board, by the way, if they make some decisions, you may not be as objective as the IRS would want you to be. So having seasoned board members on your board is crucial because a funder is looking to see who is governing this organization. Now, most people start nonprofits and the founder is the one who drives the vision, but that's not the way the IRS set it up. And that's not the way funders look at it. They, they ask you for your board roster because they want to know who is leading this organization and who's fundraising. When you have friends and family on the board, they love you and they support you, but they usually don't have fundraising skills. So having a seasoned board is crucial to the long-term sustainability of your organization. So I had a lovely guest on, and I can't remember exactly who it was, who said that at the beginning, it's okay and acceptable. I'm not sure the exact word I'm going to choose here, mm -hmm. but to start with the family because and friends because they're easy to, to attract. And then, yes, you definitely want to transition, transition them away or transition them out to a more established board of directors. But when you're first starting off, you know, friends and family are a great place to start. So what you're saying is a bit different, and I'm curious to know how would you reconcile that? Is it is it really go for seasoned right off the bat, no matter what? And if you and especially the word seasoned catches my attention because it means that these are people who've either done it before or who have, you know, who know what to expect and can challenge you from the ground up rather than Someone who's just, you know, would like to be a board of directors, but never has done it before. So there's two levels even to that. So there's your friends and family just to maybe get you going, get you starting, just to start the ball moving and then eventually transition versus what you're aiming for is the best of the definitely longer term outcome, which is the, the seasoned, the experienced board of directors. So how, where, where do you? Yeah, no, you make really good points. 99% of all um, nonprofits start with friends and family because of that, because they love you and they support you. I am about long-term sustainability. So I am going to say start off strong, right? Start off strong with seasoned board members. And people will say, well, if I don't have a track record, then how do I even recruit seasoned board members? If you have a sexy mission, if that's why I said get a track record, right? And get your um, infrastructure set up. Seasoned board members are not going to sit on a board where they have to do all of this work. That's why you have to do it in the beginning. I, where I am, Alex, I'm 55. At 20, you could have you could have caught me and I'd have been like, yes, let's build out this nonprofit. At 55, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So I, I tell my, my, my clients, build out your infrastructure. That's one way you can get some of these seasoned board members 
on your board. But here's the reality. Boards go through three phases. That setup phase, which is the inaugural board with friends and families. And then you have that second phase. The second phase is board members. They start to build out infrastructure. They start to separate the staff from the board. And then you have the institutional board. That board is the board where they just step on and really they have resources because all the policies and stuff are created. So what your person said who was on your on your show earlier is right in the fact that this is the normal practice. It's normal. I'm saying I'm about long-term sustainability and making an impact in the community right away. So if you start off with a strong board, it's going to get you to funding like three times faster. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And if, okay, you, that works. and if you do the work before, you can. You can you can pull them. You can pull some season boards. I'm I'm glad to hear it. I love the optimism too. <laughs> okay, can I can I so I've got my season board now. Can I can I please file? Yes, now now you can file. <laughs> yes, now you can file. <laughs> All right. So that's done. Next step. Where should I focus on grants? Should I find funders? Where do I get my money now? <laughs> now that I have this idea, you know, who's going to provide the cash? Let's just say you followed the success path I laid out, that you, you did your research, you're in a community that, that's not oversaturated, you built out your infrastructure, you have a sexy mission, you've got program description with measurable goals, you have an accurate budget, and you have a seasoned board. You're still newbie, right? You're still new kid on the block, and you have people who've been in the space longer than you, and you're competing against them. So what you want to do is now build up your financial portfolio. It's highly unlikely unless you have just like this really awesome board or you have relationships. It's very unlikely that you would qualify for a large grant. There's a difference between eligible and qualified. Eligible means you have a 501c3 and you can apply. Qualify means that you have um, a long track record. You know, you know what you're doing. So you want to build your your financial portfolio. What does that mean? That means you go apply at Best Buy and you get a $500 grant right? That then you put in your nonprofit. It shows that you can manage money. Then you go to the Rotary Club service organization and you say, hey, we've been doing this pilot program over here. It's been successful. I got $500. So we were able to buy, you know, um, supplies, but we have this long waiting list. We've been successful. We want to grow that. So would you invest in us? And they're like, okay, we'll give you $2,500, right? So now you have $2,500, The first thing you want to do at this point, Alex, is to put your systems in place. Nonprofit funders ask you for certain things to prove that you're a viable business. They ask you for a balance sheet. They ask you for income statements. They ask you for reports. They ask you for impact reports, right? So you need to have systems that can shoot that stuff out. Generally accepted accounting practices. So you need a QuickBooks or you need a Wave so that when you put this money into this banking account, this business banking account, not your personal one, it can then produce the documents that say, hey, at any point in time, funder, you know where your money is. You know how much has gone out. You know how much has come in. So before you start hiring people, you want to put systems in place that will allow you to produce these reports that prove you're a viable business. That's tracking. You know, they're going to ask you, okay, if I give you this money, how are you going to continue continue to fund this organization. Well, if you've been tracking your your individual donors, 
and you've been tracking your major donors and your grants, you can shoot out a report to say, here's our trend. We've been going up over the last past year. And, you know, we started off with 500. Now we have 2,500. Our board is committed. So you have to have systems in place that can then push out this documentation, if you will. What about a CRM? Because I know I love talking about CRM. So is that part of the systems as well? Or is that more down the road? Absolutely. Absolutely. This would be the most ideal time to put a CRM in place. And I would say as a startup nonprofit, I would advise you to get a CRM before I advise you to hire staff. You know why? Because CRMs, (laughs) quite frankly, will give you more return on your investment. For you to be able to to say to your funder, listen, we've been able to, you know, provide services in this geographical area. How do you know? Because when you take in these applicants, it goes into your CRM and you can push a little button, boop, 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 right? Sort, filter, whatever it is. And they can say, you know, from this geographical area to this geographical area, it will allow you to produce a dashboard that says, you know, these are the issues that our clients have. These are the number of people who've graduated. It just gives you so much data that you can create a story to get, you know, funding. So most definitely a CRM at this point. Sweet. Okay. So we've got our grants. They're progressively getting larger, which is awesome. What about then expanding to other forms of revenue or income besides grants? When would that pivot make sense? Or, and what would be the best approaches to take for that? Well, actually, this this financial portfolio that you're building out, they're not grants in terms of what I would consider like a, a real grant. They are community grants, meaning Best Buy, they give out 500. The Rotary give out 2,500. Those aren't really grants to me. Those are seed grants. How about that? Mm, sure. What we want our organizations to have is long-term sustainability. And that's not going to happen with five, ten, twenty-five thousand dollar grants. Most funders only allow you to use between eight and ten percent, maximum twenty-five percent of their grants for operations. And salaries come out of operations. So if you get a grant for five hundred dollars, I mean, what can you do with fifty? <laughs> you know what I mean? $50. If you get a grant for $250,000 and you can only use 10000 of it towards salary, you know, it's there's no long-term viability there. So what you're doing right now as you build, build up your financial portfolio is demonstrating to funders that you can manage money. The next phase, um, before I go there, Alex, every nonprofit should have 10 streams of revenue. 10, 10 streams? streams? Yes, 10 streams of revenue. And can you define what a stream means? Yeah. So um, grants, that's one stream. Contracts, that's one stream. A gala, that's a stream. Board dues, that's a stream. Merchandise sales, that's a stream. Fee for service, that's a stream. During the pandemic, 70% of the clients who came to me in a panic had to close their doors or they had to shut down because they were dependent on two streams of revenue. Guess what they were? They were a gala and a golf tournament. They're all in mm. person. And, you know, we shut down during the pandemic. So a lot of nonprofits had to shut down. They had to lay people off. If they had had 10 streams of revenue, individual donors, major donors, oh, direct mail, right? Um, if they had this variety of financial um, sustainability strategies, they may not have been like operating at 100%, but they could have still managed but when you're solely dependent on two streams of revenue, the economy that we're in right now is, is not stable. 
especially for a nonprofit. So it's important that you have 10 streams of revenue because if you lose two or three, you're still able to function. Okay. So 10 streams of revenue. Mm-hmm. Where, so that's where, what you're building up, right? You, you not that. just grants, but you're also doing fee for service. You're also signing up for employee matching programs. You've got your board dues coming in. You've got this variety of revenue coming in. So now you're solid, right? And now that you have this other types of money coming, it also makes you more appealing to funders. If you only have grants, that's restricted dollars. So if they're like, Mm, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to take my money and use it for other things. But if you have unrestricted money in there, they feel more comfortable because they feel like, okay, this organization is agile, you know? Mm-hmm. And going back to your previous one about having low income or at least revenue to be able to do operations, I w- the first thought was volunteers. So at what point would you engage or would you encourage rather uh, a nonprofit to use volunteers versus full-time staff? Is there like a balance or a threshold or a percentage between the two? Because I've seen some organizations that are on one side or the other. I'm curious to know if there's like a, a happy mix that seems to work well and to be sustainable for a long period of time. Well, I'll say this. When nonprofits come to me and say, oh, we're, you know, we're volunteer driven. It's not a, it's not a good thing. And let me tell you why. Because funders want to see a business that has culture, that has continuity in its programs. And volunteers, they can come and they can go. So if you're saying, oh, we're volunteer driven, what I hear is, okay, there's no continuity in your programs because Amber may show up today and then she won't show up next week. So how is, what's the culture in this organization? Now, the difference is, If you have a volunteer program, meaning there's structure, meaning every Thursday night we do volunteer training. So when people, you know, sign up, they go through a training. We teach them our values. We teach them, you know, that's different for a funder. If they sign a contract saying, I'm going to be committed for one term, whether that's a semester or that's a summer or that's, you know, that's different because they're structured. So I just want people to know funders are looking for a return on their investment. And if you have drop-in volunteers, it's just not a good investment. But if you have a volunteer program, they respect that because they know that, you know, everybody understands what's going on. They're delivering the programs the same way. There's tracking. So that's number one. When do you, when do you bring in a volunteer? I would say you can bring in volunteers right away as long as you have that type of structure in place. But you should have at least one hired person to manage that volunteer program. So you're going to hire a volunteer coordinator who will be responsible for the outreach, who will be responsible for the training, who will be responsible for tracking. Because then that says to a funder, there is structure there, if that makes any sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. I encourage founders to hire a virtual assistant. That's, that should be the first hire, is a virtual assistant. That's a really good idea. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, why, why yeah, yeah. As a starting point? Because most people want to hire, um, you know, an administrative assistant because that's the traditional way of doing things. But here's the truth. There's so many things to do as a founder that 
you don't want to get stuck in um, hiring a traditional W-2 employee. Why? If they don't work out, when you go through the whole process of recruiting, you know, um, interviewing, hiring, they don't work out. You've got to fire them and you got to start all over. If you hire a virtual assistant, first of all, you're going to save tons of money because you're not paying for those payroll taxes. You're not paying for benefits. You are hiring essentially a contractor. So this is what I encourage them to do. Hire a virtual assistant for 10 hours a week or 10 hours a month. Do project-based project-based engagement. So let's just say you, you want to um, transition to season board. You can have that virtual assistant do the research. This is the area that I need. Go on LinkedIn and find me 10 potential board members. That virtual assistant would go and would send information. That virtual assistant would set up the interviews. The virtual assistant would set out the packets. It's things that you can't get to because you're so busy doing programming. Have that virtual assistant start writing for those small grants. Have that virtual assistant sign you up for employee matching, but you're doing it on a project base, right? 10 hours a month, 10 hours a week. That's $7,000 a year versus $54,000 a year. And so you get a lot of your to-do things done, your foundational things that in your head, you're like, oh, I've got this long to-do list. Help them work you through that to-do list. Help them to help you bring in money, if you will. Like when you bring in seasoned board members, that's bringing in money. When you sign up on employee matching programs, that's bringing in money. So just save your money from hiring all of these people, invest in a virtual assistant to help get you through building out the foundation. It really, really works. I love it. And I can see two facets of it. One of them is like you said, just said now, it's about saving money. But the second one, it also allows you to experiment a little bit more without getting too invested into an idea. Exactly. Exactly. And it helps you just to knock down that to-do list because there's a lot of things you have to do in the beginning. I'm sure. And could you extrapolate that idea, that principle of, of experimentation to various types of revenue and programs? Like those 10, pro- 10 streams of revenue, for example, you might not get it right the first time. Exactly. Are there any kind of tips or strategies that you convey to help nonprofits say, look, you know, you tried, try doing a gala, but do like a mini gala, you know, like a, <laughs> don't go for the 10,000 people gala, go for, I don't know, whatever number makes sense for you. And then work your way up to, because as a perfectionist, I always try aiming right away for the perfection, which doesn't always work. So maybe there's a way of starting small, learning from the lessons, uh, you know, the lessons learned during having that event and then um, improving as you go along rather than shooting for gold right away. Is there any, is that a strategy that you'd also recommend? And if so, like how would you recommend approaching that? Yeah, first of all, I hate galas. People do galas because they see other nonprofits doing galas, not understanding the back the background to that. Galas and corporate sponsorships, they do them wrong. The purpose of a, of, of a gala is to honor someone who can buy out the room. You want to get sponsors to cover all of the expenses so that the tables that you sell is all profit. People will say, oh, we have a gala and they're trying to sell these tickets and they they don't even break even because you have to put the mm. deposit for the hotel. You've got to do the entertainment. You got to. And it just if they it would have made more sense just to ask everybody to give them one hundred dollars than, than to have a gala. <laughs> but you're supposed to honor somebody like at Disney or or Microsoft and they will buy out the table and you have corporate sponsors who will you know cover all of the expenses so that the other people who come in, it's all profit. Your silent auction, it's all profit. So most people don't even know that. But anyway. I don't even remember the question. Oh, the question was <laughs> to build up, right? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. So I think a really good weapon for a startup nonprofit is a newsletter. And let me tell you why. This newsletter will accomplish seven things. If it's if it's MailChimp, constant contact, whatever these little systems are, number one, you get to put your organization out there. It doesn't have to be a, a long um, newsletter, but you send it to your elected officials. You send it to potential collaborators, like people doing the same thing. You send it to funders. You want to get in front of people. When we talk about impact, you those things that you've done, even if it's just a pilot program, you could say, hey, new kids on the block, you know, we've been doing this pilot program with this other organization who has a good reputation, and this is what we've discovered, right? And then you have a little button, learn more. And then you, you know, you say, this is what we've created. This is what the outcomes are. And then you have a little button that says, if you like what we're doing, go ahead and support. You can also feature like your volunteers. You can feature your board members. You can say thank you to the people who have donated before. But the purpose of this newsletter, number one, is to get you in front of people who have money, individual donors, major donors, board members. You can put in there, we're recruiting board members. So this investment in this um, newsletter will get you like three for one, visibility, potential to generate revenue, and then it gets you in front of elected officials, funders, and things of that nature. So I always tell my nonprofits, if you're going to invest in anything in terms of marketing, in terms of fundraising, it should be um, your digital newsletter. Okay. I do want to circle back to that gala, and I do appreciate the fact that you aren't a big fan, and I can totally understand why. I, I chose gala just because it was the Top one it's on common. List. It's very <laughs> common. Yes. <laughs> we, can, we can we can we can break apart anything else, like even merchandise. Let's let's, let's break apart maybe merchandise, right? Mm-hmm. You have an idea. You want to sell T-shirts, but you're not sure. Like with T-shirts, as with anything with inventory, you have to go to a supplier. You have to make a certain amount potentially. Then you promote them. Hopefully, you sell your inventory, buy a new batch, or you, of course, you can do pre-orders and stuff like that. But the pre-order is really a mechanism to see and, and test demand before you actually make the commitment of making of going to the supplier and, and actually purchasing those t-shirts. So like I would think that it would make sense to do those kinds of steps to mitigate potential loss as opposed to let's just order 10,000 t-shirts because we know, quote unquote, we know people are going to buy it. And then of course you're stuck with 9,999 t-shirts at the end of the day. Right. So two things about that. People have to be careful about the way they generate money. Um, when you per- when you sell T-shirts, when you sell merch, if it's not ingrained in your mission, you may be liable to pay what's called UBIT, um, unrelated business um, income tax. So, for example, if your mission is to um, support in their pursuit of, of college, that's your mission. So tell, sell, selling T-shirts is not. But people say, oh, but this, the T-shirt money goes to support the organization. But that's not in support of your mission. How that would be in support of your mission is if you say, you know, our mission is, is in support of youth um, becoming entrepreneurs. And so you have them build out like a fake little, not a fake, but a small business plan. And then they design the shirts and then they sell the shirts. Well, now that's in support of your mission. And so you won't have to get taxed on that. I just have to say that because so many people, you know, but to your point, (laughs) I would say, yes, there are um, companies out there that drop ship. So you would put five, six, seven, you know, merchandise items on your website, see if they sell. And if they do let that company drop ship them, you don't want to purchase them in advance. 
Um, technology has improved. Back in the day, in the 90s, when I was an executive director, uh, program officer, we had to buy stuff and store it. Now it's it's the Amazon world. So, But you can create this store on your website, see if it sells. Those things that sell a lot, keep doing it. Those things that don't, get rid of them. You definitely don't want to invest too much of your money not knowing if it's going to. That's why when you do your budget, it's a guess. It's It's what you think. And then a year later, you refine it. It's the same way with your fundraising. You look at all of these 10 fundraising streams, which one is actually generating money. And the ones that, you know, are not, you don't do them anymore. You replace them with something else. Yeah, the reassessing part, I think, is is really critical and beneficial. Just because it works today, I mean, I think it's important to reassess every, I don't know, certain free period of time to make sure it's still working for you and then trim the fat, so to speak, to remove the ones that you don't need are not profitable, energy wasters, and just don't have the outcome that you're hoping to achieve. So that kind of... Is this still working for me today? Question to ask yourself every period of time makes total sense. And you know what's interesting? I have people say, oh, my board doesn't do anything. I'm always reporting out. Those are the things that should be happening at your board meetings. Like you're looking to see, okay, where are we in terms of the budget? And then you look to see, well, what areas are actually, you know, producing revenue? And that's what you should be talking about in your board meetings because your board is responsible for the fundraising part. So as the executive director, you're supposed to come to your board meeting and report out what's going on in the day-to-day and then partnering with your um, board to see, you know, what, what the needs are and how you're going to meet those needs. So that would be a perfect opportunity to have those discussions you're talking about. And then, okay, so now you've got certain streams. The one that I was hoping just to nibble on was mm-hmm. approaching like the the funders, the really big fish the whales, I don't know what the word is these days anymore. Uh, but the idea of, of being able to attract some really big uh, individuals or corporations to really level up your organization. And I was just curious if we could just, again, just to scratch the surface of this, because I don't think we've got enough time. It could be probably an episode by itself, and it has been actually. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, but just, you know, like when, maybe I'll phrase the question this way. This nonprofit's running well. Mm-hmm. But you want to take it to the next level. You really want to step up. You want to 10x whatever you're doing. So you you believe that this is the right approach. Now you have to position yourself or do something to really track those big, big numbers. Is there things that can be done in preparation for that before you go out and start asking for the big money? Well, if you've been um, tracking your impact, that's huge because even if you, let's just say, Alex, you've been getting 10,000, you know, 5,000, 25,000, but there's a need in your community. If you can demonstrate it, you can ask for the big money. I'll give you an example. I had a client, she just had like 10, 15 different contracts, but they were like five, 10, $15,000. And I'm like, this is not sustainable. So we looked at her programs and what she said is she had a waiting list. You know, she did youth development, workforce development, and she had a waiting list. And so you make the case that, okay, if we had more money, if we had two more program coordinators, if we have um, the opportunity to serve more, we could. So there is a basis for asking for money. Um, you just got to tie it in to your proof. So one, you've got to make sure that you are in alignment with your funders guidelines, right? 
you look at, okay, well, how much did they normally give out? And if they normally gave out 175 or 200, great. That's where you want to be. And you look at who they're funding, what they're funding. If your program is innovative and it needs to be innovative because you're competing against other, you know, organizations with a track record, then you make the case. You say, hey, we've got these amazing outcomes. Look, 90% of our girls are gone off to um, a STEM major, but we've got a waiting list. We've got six other schools. We need to hire other people. We need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you justify the need, that big jump. And that's really where people get scared. Well, I've just been getting five, 10,000. How do I go, you know, from that to 150 and 250? You justify it with the need in your community. And then you say, in order to meet that need, like we need to increase our capacity. That means we need to hire positions to do X, Y, and Z. That's how you do it. This might seem like an odd question. It's it, it, it's relevant in, in my life these days of, of knowing when enough is enough. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, is there a, a certain criteria or a certain feeling that or moment or what does it take for that moment to happen where a nonprofit and the founders and the, and the, and the board of directors feel like we're doing well, like we are... We've, we've done the 10x, we've got to that point, we're moving along. Now, not to say we can lay back and, and relax a little bit, but at least to feel successful in whatever way you want to define successful. I would love to, as the founder of this new profit we've just built, feel like I, I got this. And not, not just I got this, more than that. It's I, I'm doing well, I, I'm, I'm really feeling the impact, I'm feeling the love, things are going well. It doesn't mean, of course, that I can lay back and now... Um, just sit there and do nothing. Of course, it, the, the mission continues. Right. But I'm wondering if there's ever a moment and how would you recognize that moment to say, okay, good for you? Right. I think it's three things. Number one, you are paying your staff every month and you're paying them market rate. Nonprofits have a tendency to underpay and overwork their um, their employees. And so you have this high turnover. When you're at a place where you're paying your people, you're giving them, you know, cost of living increases, maybe even bonuses, like that's, that's very rare. So that, you know, you've arrived then. The second thing is when you, um, have funders approaching you. This is the best feeling in the world for my nonprofits. And sometimes I have to stop them and say, you just said that a funder came to you. And she said, yeah, like that is huge. When a funder says, hey, we're thinking about funding you, um, you know, what? Yeah. So that's the second. And then the third is when you have reserves in your bank. Uh, a nonprofit is always struggling to keep their organization afloat. And when you have reserves, just like you do when you, you know, have that that savings it on a personal level, you feel a little bit more secure. If something comes up, you're like, well, we got a little stash over there. So for me, those three things are indicators that you that you made it. I love those answers because I can it definitely resonates with me as well too. I think this is a great place to park it. Amber, this has been awesome. Uh, I'm sure people have questions. I hope people have questions. And you have obviously a whole program related to this and everything we've spoken about today. So where can people get in touch with you uh, online? 
Yeah. You know, the best place to find me is on my website. Um, and I like to draw people to my website. I have socials, but I have so many resources for um, nonprofits at any stage. I actually stage nonprofits because, you know, you don't want to be in, in stage zero doing the work in stage five. It's just a waste of time and energy. So if you go to www.amberwind.net, you can find information um, about my course. I have a course 90 days to a profitable nonprofit because I'm all about the money, Alex. If if you have money, you have choices, right? Mm-hmm. People are doing the work day in and day out, but they're they're suffering, you know, they're they're struggling trying to serve their community. And I believe in supporting the nonprofit. So there's that. But then I have a podcast on YouTube and Spotify and Anchor and all of that stuff. <laughs> I am on LinkedIn and I am on Instagram, but I think the best place to go is my website. Awesome. Amber, thank you so much for joining me today. Alex, it's been so fun. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.